There we go. That's better. Luke chapter 18, we're going to read two sections. Uh, We're going to read uh, what is known as the parable of the tax collector. Uh, And then in chapter 19, uh, we're going to read the first few verses there, and that's known as the story of Zacchaeus. So you can turn there. You don't have to. Um, A lot of us like just to listen uh, rather than to follow along uh, because we truly are hearing the word of our God, and that's what this is. Uh, Beloved, this is God's gift to us. Uh, It is a treasure. Uh, He not only inspired it, but he has preserved it so that we may study it, that we may receive it, so that we may know the Lord our God and love and serve and follow him. So with that, let's read this as we ought to with faith and hope and with love. Chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray again before we sit down. Blessed Lord Jesus Christ, you are the light and the glory of God. You are the light of all of mankind. You are the light of the world. Make your face shine upon us that we might see the glory of God and be transformed into your glorious image. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, 
You are our glory. You are our praise. You are our life. And we boast this morning in your life-giving cross by which the world has been crucified to us and us to the world. Our master and king have mercy on us and save us. Give us the courage to hear and to receive all that you have for us in your holy gospel. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. No doubt you're familiar with uh, the statement in its various forms that the eyes are a window into the soul. Um, Kids, I'm going to clue you in on something here if you're not aware of this. This is how we parents know when you've done something wrong and you think we don't know you've done something wrong. It's in your eyes. But it's probably in your eyes because you won't look at us. (laughs) Your eyes are fidgeting here and fidgeting there. And that's because through the eyes, you can see the soul. You gain insight into a person by looking into their eyes, or as I've just said, by someone not being able to look into your eyes. Sometimes we fear somebody, and so we won't look at them. Sometimes we are intimidated by somebody, and so our eyes kind of shift off to the side. Sometimes we're just ashamed of something we've done or said. How hard is it when apologizing to somebody to actually look at them in the eyes? There's something right about that. That's not necessarily a bad thing because of the sense of shame that we feel and probably ought to feel if we have sinned against somebody. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the parable of uh, this Pharisee and this tax collector through the story of the eyes that are present. You may not see it yet, but there are three sets of eyes. There is, of course, the Pharisee's eyes. There is the tax collector's eyes. And there are God's eyes. And all three of them are manifested in the parable. There's a number of ways to read the parable, but I'm just going to use the, that particular sort of organization and uh, sort of access into this. The first person we encounter is the Pharisee. Now, please understand, Jesus isn't talking about all Pharisees in this. Uh, this isn't some sort of a, 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 a carte blanche condemnation of like, this is what all Pharisees are like. Uh, his relationship to the Pharisees is a very complicated relationship. At times, he says things that are very good about the Pharisees. I think most of us are fully aware that there are times in which he is very, very hard on the Pharisees. Uh, and maybe hard is putting that very lightly. I think his firmest, strongest words are reserved for some of them. He is using an illustration. And he's using an illustration that would be readily available to anyone listening of opposites. A Pharisee on the one hand and a tax collector on the other. That's kind of the point. So inside of the illustration, inside of the point, he says, I'm going to tell a parable about 
people who trust in themselves that they are righteous and look at others with contempt. The first sort of note um, that is tucked away in here is Jesus does not use the word for faith here. It's not that they believe in themselves. It's that they are persuaded about something regarding themselves. That's the point. He has been persuaded of something concerning himself and something concerning other people. He's not resting in himself or or he's not trusting in himself. He is persuaded about something concerning himself, and that is this, that he is righteous. But it's not just that he is righteous. It's that he sets himself up against those who are sinners. And so as much as he believes that he is something, it's also that he isn't something. I'm not a sinner. I'm not empty. I'm not needy. And Jesus is right, in a sense, he's using a Pharisee because they certainly looked like they had it all together. Pharisees would have been decked out in, in, in uh, a certain expression of piety. Uh, if you meet certain Jews today, they also have certain expressions of piety on their foreheads, on the sides of their head, uh, the sermon garments that they would have worn. This Pharisee looked the part. He didn't look like sinners. He looks the part. He plays the part. He has, in fact, gone up to the temple to pray, uh, right? But he has persuaded himself that he isn't like others. And then what that ends up doing is that manifests itself in the way that he looks upon others. He looks down upon them. So pride, here's the difference between pride and contempt. Pride is how I view myself. Sort of an elevated sense of self, an elevated sense of of my superiority in something or some activity or character or whatever. Contempt is how I then look down on other people. They, They are twins of each other. They go together, but they are not the same thing. Pride is how I see myself. Contempt is how then I see you in relationship to me. So he is bloated and inflated, overestimating himself, which then uh, means that he looks down and treats others with contempt. And this contempt manifests itself in the fact that they just can't measure up to him. They don't measure up and they can't measure up. They can't meet his standards because they don't meet God's standards. Look at how contempt manifests itself in the parable is it says that he stands by himself. He is standing by himself because he does not want to be stained by others. He wants to maintain his righteousness. He wants to maintain his superiority. He does not want to be corrupted by the people that he is worshiping. So his problem is that he judges himself by other people. You can see his eyes. 
right? His eyes are looking around. How do we know his eyes are looking around? Is because in his prayer, he literally points to the tax collector like this guy. He's not looking up. He's looking around at the other people that he is worshiping. And you almost get the sense that he's like, like that adulterer, like that extortioner, or like this tax collector here. He is judging himself by others. And if he judges himself by others, he's just simply more righteous than they are. And they are worthy of his contempt. And out of that contempt and out of that pride come this prayer. Right? The prayer is interesting because it starts so good. If your prayer starts, God, great. That's a great place to start a prayer. If the next words of your prayer are, I thank you, great, you're, you're, you're right on the track because prayer in so many ways is giving thanks to God. But this is where everything just goes off the rails. His heart actually becomes manifested, just like our hearts are manifested in our prayers as well. His prayers manifest by the repetition of I I, 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 I. There's his pride. I. And then the contempt is, I am not like that. I am not like that. So I, 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 and then he just views everybody else uh, in the wrong way. Extortioners unrighteous adulterers. I think this tells us something, or at least reminds us of something. If when you see other people, whether they're in the church or out of the church, if when you look at other people, you see their sin, and you define them by their sin, you might have something wrong in your heart. So that's the problem with the Pharisee. That's what he sees when he sees other people. It's not what he sees when he sees himself, but other people. And then he says, of course, to end it, not like this tax collector. His eyes are right there. He knows he's fully aware of everybody around him. Even though he's standing off, he's fully aware that they are there. Because you can, like with his heart, he is pointing at this tax collector. And then he lists his resume. I fast twice a week. Uh, I tithe of all that I get. So these would have been very common serious-minded Jewish practices, even to this day. They fast twice a week, um, and right they tithe, right? And, and Jesus reminds them, when, remember when he commends them, you tithe mint and cumin, and, like a, and he's like, you should do that, right? So he's, there's something good and right about what the Pharisee has articulated with regard to his own piety. But there's an irony there. And the irony is with fasting. What exactly is fasting? What does fasting mean 
at least in part. Right? Fasting means to deprive yourself of needful things. What fasting does is it brings your soul or your spirit and your body together in its neediness before God. That's what fasting is doing, is you're depriving something to your body so that your physical body catches up to the neediness of your spirit before God. Because you are body and spirit. And so part of fasting is just to bring those two things into an alignment so that your whole person realizes that everything you need can only come from God, right? But he doesn't view himself that way. He doesn't view himself as empty or needy or anything like that. So there's a little bit of irony that he, in his prayer, he would boast about the very thing that testifies to his neediness before God. But what about now? In what ways might we express a similar heart? That we might express a, a similar belief system about ourselves? Even though we should, I suspect most of us don't fast. So we can't claim that one. <laughs> most of us aren't saying, I fast twice a week. P possibly you might say, I tithe. Okay, so that one... That one's available to us, usually, for most of us. I have a responsible job. I care for my family. I keep the commandments. I'm squeaky clean. I'm involved at the church. I'm a faithful giver. I teach Sunday school. I'm a leader. Well, those are great things. <laughs> those are amazing things. And kudos to you if that is part of your life. If, that, if those are the general patterns of your life, that's great. But if they become the vehicle by which you judge yourself and others, you've missed the point. So there are plenty of ways we might manifest the same thing that the Pharisee does. It just looks slightly different in our own context. We convince ourselves what must be true. I am not like other people. So we see his eyes. His eyes are looking down. The second uh, set of eyes we see are the tax collector's eyes. He, too, is looking down. But he is looking down for an entirely different set of reasons. The tax collector is at literally at the opposite end of the piety religious spectrum than the Pharisee. So tax collectors were those who worked for, they were Jews who worked for the Roman Empire. And what they did is they extracted taxes from the Jews in order to pay the fees that the Roman Empire required for, you know, its police state, its military, uh, I'm sure to pad the next house for the emperor, uh, the next resorts, and all, right, is that they would extract taxes from uh, the, the city-states that they ruled over, right? They allowed them a lot of freedom, but you had to pay tribute and taxes from them. The tax collectors were Jews who 
gathered those taxes for the Romans. What a common practice would be is that the tax collectors would section off a portion of the city and out of their own pocket, they would pay all of the taxes for a certain section of the city, just pay it up front to the Roman Empire. And then they would go extort that community for more than they had paid. which is why they're often called extortioners. One historian compares them to the mafia crime families. That's how they would have been seen. I think in our day, it might be something like the Jews who worked for the Nazis. They're the low of the low, traitors, liars, scoundrels, extortioners, defrauders, swindlers. So Jesus sets these two up, and they couldn't be more opposite of each other. The one looks like he belongs there, acts like he belongs there, and in some sense does belong there. The other is a complete moral leper. He couldn't be more opposite. He too goes up to the temple to pray, like the Pharisee. He too stands off by himself. Did you notice that? The Pharisee stands off by himself. The tax collector stands off by himself. He stands off by himself because he knows he's not worthy to be there. He doesn't want to be a contaminating factor in worship whereas the Pharisee doesn't want to be contaminated. And so where are his eyes? His eyes, like the Pharisees, are looking down. But they are looking down in humiliation. He is looking down in fear. He is looking down in unworthiness. And the truth is, he should be. That's just the truth of it. He should be. His life is not a life in which you come into worship without fear and boldness. It just isn't. Now, what's important is notice that it doesn't say that he's afraid to look at other people it says that he would, would not dare to lift up his eyes to heaven, that is, up to God. You see, when he gathers for worship, he judges himself by God. He does not judge himself by the other people around him. If he were by himself, he would still feel unworthy to be there because he's gathered before God. He's in God's presence. He is gathered to pray to God. Not to others, not to the Pharisee, not to anybody else. He doesn't see other people. He doesn't see their sins. It's like he's the only one. And this will come out in just a moment in the prayer that he utters. Like the Pharisee, it starts great. God. But then it goes, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, this isn't the normal word for mercy. Um, 
It's related to the normal word for mercy, but this isn't the normal word for mercy. This is a variation of the word that is used in the Old Testament to refer to the mercy seat. Right? So you know what the mercy seat is? is it's the lid on the Ark of the Covenant, right? In which, right, the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God. The cherubim come up. God sits enthroned between the cherubim. The ark is like his footstool, and inside of the ark is the law and the rod of uh, staff of Aaron that budded and the, a jar of manna, among other things the book of Hebrews tells us. Um, it's the throne of God. It's, it's, it's the place of mercy. It's right, And that's why you can see why he appeals to that. You might even translate that, be reconciled to me. Be propitiatory towards me. I know that's a word we don't use very often. Um, it's like he's just begging God to be the mercy seat for him. Which is why our English translations say have mercy. That's a good translation. As long as you see that there's there are things underneath the surface of that that is very vivid. He's in the temple and he's just begging God to be the mercy seat to him. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Be reconciled to me. Turn your face towards me. The more that I pray, the more that I lead worship, the more that I study scripture, I believe that this is the most basic, fundamental prayer that should be uttered. Just think about the life of Jesus. If you were just to see how people approached him, what do you think was the most common prayer he heard? It's this one. Lord, have mercy. In fact, um, in chapter 17, there's the ten lepers whom Jesus approaches, and what do they say? Lord, or Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. After this parable, the story of the blind man at the gate of Jericho. What does he pray? Son of da Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He heard this prayer over and over and over and over in the days of his sojourning in this world. What's interesting about the prayer, uh, which we don't often stop to think, is that there are, most of the time, you can discern a very specific issue that needs, that they are asking Jesus to address. So they're lepers. So when they say, like, we would expect them to say, Lord Jesus, cleanse us from our leprosy. That's what we expect them to say. But that's not what they say. They say, Lord, have mercy on us. Or a blind man. What do you expect a blind man to say to Jesus? Lord, heal me. Open my eyes. But that's not what he says. What he says is, have mercy on me. What is this cry of mercy then? And why is it so appropriate no matter the situation or the circumstance? Because the cry of mercy means something like this. God, in this case the Lord Jesus, be everything that you can be for me.
Be everything that you can be for me. Think of God's mercy as his love moving towards somebody in action. That's mercy. So when they stand there, they could say, cleanse me. They could say, open my eyes. But it is more fitting to say, have mercy. Because whatever you want to do in my life, that's what I want. However you're going to work in my life, that's what I want. That's what I need. We just are begging him to show up, to come and to be who he is. But when he shows up, what does he do? He heals. He restores, right? He does all the things that we know him to do. We're just begging him to come and to do those things without telling him how and when and what he should be doing. So I think that this cry for mercy is just one of the most basic. It should be on our lips constantly as Christian. So he cries out, God, be merciful to me. I'm, I'm not sure why the ESV doesn't put the definite article there. It doesn't say a sinner. It says the sinner. Right? The point there is he knows the weight of his unworthiness. But the point is even more significant. It's like he's the only one. He's not looking around. He's not judging anybody else. He's just simply saying, I am the sinner. It reminds me of Paul's language in Timothy where he refers to himself as the chief of sinners, which is ironic because Paul was a Pharisee. So he's fully aware of his own sin, and he, he confesses it as if he were the only one in the temple that had sin. I am the sinner. So we see the Pharisee's eyes, we see the tax collector's eyes, and now we see God as he looks down. They are both, they have both come up to the temple. They are both in the temple. One is standing off by himself to pray. The other is as well. One is confident and self-assured. The other is humiliated and shame-filled. They both look down and God looks down and he sees something very different. He looks down. How do we know that he looks down? Because he renders his judgment in the parable. He has seen the whole thing play out. He's watched it all play out and he pronounces that the one, the tax collector, has now gone down to his house, justified. You see, that's his divine approbation. That's his declaration that he has seen the whole thing played out. And that the one who has humbled himself, God has seen and has exalted and has heard him and answered him. The tax collector went to his home forgiven and blessed, while the opposite is true of the Pharisee. An amazing parable, right? Let me offer just a few reflections. As I said earlier, we need to be very careful when we deal with a parable like this. This is an illustration of opposites. This is not everything Jesus thinks about the Pharisees. 
Nor is it everything that Jesus thinks about the actions and the piety of the Pharisees any more than this is a reflection about what Jesus thinks about the sinful behavior of the tax collector. Should people be extortioners? (laughs) No. Should they be adulterers and tax collectors and that... No, he's just not talking about that. So we need to be very careful that he's not just simply condemning one and approving the other. The tax collector's behavior is morally reprehensible. Right? And the, the Pharisee's behavior, apart from how he views himself, is good. He's not an adulterer. <laughs> he's not an extortioner. Right? Jesus just isn't, isn't dealing with that. That's not the point. He isn't commending the actions of the one or condemning the actions of the tax collector. He's just not. The issue is that it's they who are judging themselves. One is judging themselves by others, and the other is judging themselves by God. Of course, the natural question for us is, In what way are we looking down? Are you looking down at others, or are you looking down because of yourself and because of God? That is a natural question that arises from the parable. Do we exalt ourselves, or do we humble ourselves? That is what the parable is pressing upon us. Because there's a real danger. (laughs) There's a danger lurking in a response to the parable. And as soon as I say it, you're going to laugh because as soon as I say it, you're going to be like, oh, of course. The danger is this. God, I thank you that I am not like this Pharisee. That's perverse. <laughs> it may, you may think you can do that. And you may think that the parable is even inviting you to compare yourself to the Pharisee, but it's not. It is to commit the exact same sin as the Pharisee if you think, at least I'm not that. It would be to exalt yourself in a completely different way. It would be to compare yourself to someone else instead of to the God before whom you worship. You see how perverse that is? (laughs) How tricky that is? Because it, it sort of feels like that's what we're supposed to do. It's like he's trying to tell you, which one are you, or whatever. Like We just need to be very careful how we parse that out. What we need to do is take the prayer of the tax collector upon our own lips and in our own hearts. That's the right response. And that is the prayer. God, be merciful to me as if you were the only sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. When we stand before his throne, just think of that. When we come into worship and we are invited into God's presence, what 
do you say about yourself when you stand before him? That's all that matters. What is in your heart in worship? Are your eyes darting darting here and there? Or do you understand the cry for mercy which emanates from your own hearts? There's a prayer in the history of the church. It started in the 3rd and the 4th centuries. And it's it, we don't typically, in our Reformed tradition, we don't generally like standard prayers. You know, prayers that have been written out for us or prayers that we, we would use often. And partly because what we broke away from in terms of the Catholic Church had abused that kind of uh, piety, but there is a prayer that emerged in the third and the fourth centuries. The, the first versions of it did, and it's called the Jesus Prayer. And it's largely based on this parable, and it says this Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a great prayer. That's a great prayer to say over again and over again. That is a great prayer to meditate on, to reflect on. It is a a beautiful prayer because it so much reflects what it looks like for us to humble ourselves before God. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Finally, there's a dynamic going on in Luke that's hard, it's hard to grasp for me. So I'm going to do my best to sort of figure out how the parable is actually going to play itself out in this gospel. So the, the, the tax collector goes up and he prays, God have mercy upon me, the sinner. God sees it, right? He hears it. He acknowledges it. He comes and descends in blessing to him. Right, The parable reminds us that we can't hide from Jesus. You can hide from others. You can't hide from God. He sees, he knows when we pray. One of the ways in which we know from the Luke, God sees and hears our prayer, is it goes something like this. When you beg God for mercy... What is God's answer? Like, if there's a true plea for mercy, the answer is always Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's mercy. Jesus is God's love in action. So when we pray for mercy, what we're begging God to do is send your son into our life so that he can be everything he can be for us. There's a sense in which that's what the tax collector is praying. God, move towards me in your mercy. Move towards me in your love. And for us, we know that means to move towards us in Jesus Christ. We know that God has heard that prayer because notice what Jesus then does. He is the answer to the prayer of the tax collector. A tax collector cries out to God in the parable, and guess who Jesus ends up meeting with at the end of this section? 
It is a tax collector. God has heard the prayer. He moves towards the tax collector in Jesus Christ, who is his mercy. God doesn't simply look down. He comes down in his son. And in this case, quite literally, Jesus ends up with a tax collector. A chief tax collector. When we read that story, did you notice what is all around that story? It's their eyes. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he can't. He climbs up so that he can see Jesus, right? But the text never actually says he does see Jesus. What the text says is that Jesus saw him. Jesus is moving towards him in mercy. In fact, Jesus has gone out of his way from his normal course to go to Jericho just to find him, the tax collector. It's as if the parable has set in motion what Jesus is going to do. He is the answer of the tax collector's prayer. Zacchaeus thinks he's looking for Jesus, but the truth is Jesus is looking for him the chief tax collector. Zacchaeus never actually sees him. Jesus sees him. Even when he goes up into the tree, did you notice that? So that he could see Jesus. It never says he did. It says Jesus came to the place where he was and looked up at him. Jesus doesn't look down to see Zacchaeus. He has to look up. That's God's mercy. That is God's love in action. The one who sits enthroned between the cherubim. The one who is the mercy seat in the temple where prayer is offered to whom we dare not lift our eyes is the one whom we see looking at us when we look down. So the Pharisee says, I cannot, I'm sorry, the tax collector says, I will not lift up my eyes to see God. But when he looks down in humiliation and shame, who does he see? He sees Jesus. Just as Zacchaeus has to look down to see Jesus. When we look down in humiliation and shame, there he is. Jesus is there. Jesus is in our humiliation. He is in our shame. He is in our sin because it is precisely there that we experience God's love and mercy and forgiveness. When we look down, we see Jesus looking at us. And this is where we find transformation as well. In the parable of the tax collector, it says that he goes home justified. Have you ever wondered why Jesus is so adamant? Zacchaeus, I have to go to your house. Right? He could have done whatever he needed to do right there. He says, no, we need to go to your house. Because the parable said the tax collector went to his house. Justified. 
And so Jesus tells the chief tax collector, we must go to your house. And that's where he finds not only forgiveness, that's where he finds transformation. When God's love and mercy invade our hearts, invade our homes, what comes out is repentance. What comes out is transformation. What comes out is renewal. And so the chief tax collector changes everything. I will give one half of everything I owe. Those are his prophets. I give it all. I give it to the poor. And then he keeps the rest so that all of the Jewish people that he has defrauded to get that profit, which he just gave away, he will restore them fourfold. You see what happens when love and mercy invade his home. He gets more than he bargains for. (laughs) When we cry for mercy, Jesus comes and we get more than we bargained for. We get him and with him comes transformation. With him comes renewal. And Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. Beloved, we need to take up the cry of the tax collector. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. This is the cry of one who doesn't look around but looks down. But in looking down, he sees Jesus looking at him. This is the cry of one who looks down in the right way. This is the cry of one who actually knows the one who's sitting on the throne. And be amazed at what Jesus does when he answers that prayer. Amen? Amen in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. What we need is nothing less than your entire fullness. We need all of the love, all of the forgiveness, all of the renewal, all of the transformation that you alone can give to us. We have no life apart from you. There is no fruit. There is no hope. There is nothing. There is only nothingness and death. But in you is life, in you is glory, in you is exaltation. And so as we look down and humble ourselves, we find you ready to exalt us. Forgive us, have mercy on us, renew and transform us. Be all that you are in our hearts, in our lives. Hear us, we beg. Have mercy on us, we pray. Amen. Here at the table of our Lord, we come with that singular prayer upon our lips. Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And the answer to that prayer is Jesus. So that today, 
when you look down in your humiliation and shame. And looking down what you see in your hands are his body and his blood given for you. And this meal belongs to those who have truly in their hearts uttered that prayer. But only to those who have truly uttered that prayer. It belongs to those who belong to the church of Jesus Christ. To those who have confessed their sins. Who have been baptized into his triune name. It belongs to those who walk in faith and repentance and whose constant prayer is, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. If that describes you, then you are welcome and even encouraged to come and to join us in this meal today. Because this is a place where Jesus comes to you, gives himself to you, says, this is my body and this is my blood for you. But if that's not true of you, let me encourage you just to let the elements pass, but I would also encourage you not to let Christ pass. But like those beggars say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. And he promises that whoever calls upon his name will be saved. And if you desire what it means to follow after Jesus, I would love to talk with you about that. But as we come today, let's come with that humility of heart, looking down and finding that Jesus is looking back up at us. Let's ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements then and set them apart for this holy use. O Lord our God, even now as we come to your table, Lord, we know that we do not deserve even the crumbs that fall from it. And yet you invite us to come. You lift up the eyes of our faith to Jesus, to your provision for our cries for mercy where you come and give all of yourself for all of our need. And so we ask that you would take these ordinary elements now of bread and of wine and that you would set them apart for this holy use, that as we receive them in thanksgiving and in faith, that Christ himself would be ours in all of his grace and all of his love and mercy and compassion to us. And that these elements uh, that you give to us then might spurn us on to love and good deeds, that it might have that transforming effect in our lives. They are, after all, means of grace to us in this way. We pray that they would grow us in grace, and we say it all in Jesus' name. Amen.